0: Our sermon text is from Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you.
1: Let's pray together to begin our time in God's word. Lord, we are so grateful for the scripture that instructs us and challenges us, comforts us, We pray that as we look at this familiar passage, we would find new insights, new areas for correction, new areas to praise you and rejoice in you, and to show our gratitude for the gospel. And even as we enter into this Thanksgiving season, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see uh, that the things that we have to be thankful for in particular is this great gift that we call the good news or the gospel. And so I pray that we would fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts on that this morning. And I pray that you would shape us around your word and that you would speak to us and apply these words through your Holy Spirit to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I have a, a question, but it almost seems silly to ask it. But I'll ask it anyway. How many of you have ever seen politics within the church. Okay. I expected no less than that. So... I'm using the term politics, of course, not to refer to the Democratic and Republican parties or to your favorite news station or to who you voted for for president or any of that stuff. Right? Of course, all of that's a reality now in the life of the church in a way that it probably wasn't, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's really explosive. But that's all beside the point. What I'm talking about when I talk about politics is I'm talking about the political mechanisms that we sometimes find in the church, things that we would associate with the underhandedness of politics, those things like manipulation or deception or trying to get an angle on someone or using leverage to get what you want out of something or strategizing, gossip, accusation, all of the tools... Of the world. Such behavior, as we all probably know, destroys the church, destroys the health of the church. It's it's impossible to have a healthy congregation when that sort of thing is running through the congregation, right? It also destroys the witness of the congregation. When people in the community or other believers know that a church has that reputation that a body of professing Christians has that reputation, the witness of that congregation is irreparably damaged. Our text for this morning shows us a pathway through all of that political mess that we sometimes find in churches. And we're people. It's going to happen. We're sinful people. It's going to happen. Uh, all the way down from the pastor to every single person in the congregation, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fail, we're not always going to act like Christ. So I'm, I'm not trying to dump guilt on us. But our text does show us what a healthy congregation should look like because that sort of behavior in an ideal congregation shouldn't characterize the church that's just what we're striving for is to not have that behavior within our congregation instead the remedy or the fix is to focus our minds on the riches of our faith you right, focus on the gospel. We focus on imitating Christ, on being conformed to Christ. All these things we've talked about as we've been going through Philippians over the last uh, several weeks. We focus on filling our heads with the truths. Of our faith. We're going to see all of that in this text. And really, this text captures so much of the whole letter. Most of the themes in the letter can be seen in these nine, ten verses that we're looking at this morning. And it shows us this text shows us what a Christian community can look like. So it holds out an option for us of what we can be together as people who name the name of Jesus. And I think it's a very compelling option, and I hope you'll find it compelling as well as we search Scripture this morning. So let's just pick up there in Philippians 4. Brandon did a great job reading our text for us, but let's dive back into it. Beginning in Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, and I've explained this word numerous times. When you find it in the New Testament, it is an inclusive term, not just men, but also women. My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Here's his command. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. All right, notice his affection. He calls them brothers or sisters. And then he says, whom I love and whom I long for. So we get this numerous terms for affection, my joy, my crown. This is how he characterizes them. This is what Paul thinks of these other believers. And it gives us insight into what a mature Christian like Paul thinks of other believers. Look how he cherishes them. And then he closes with this term of endearment. He says, my beloved or just simply beloved. So he describes them with all of these terms of closeness and, and affection. And, and this verse, by the way, could have gone with last week's sermon. We could have finished chapter 3 and then added this to it. That therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, stand firm as a conclusion to all of what he said last week. Remember what he said last week in chapter 3. He said, press on. Make the faith your own. Push on into the faith. Keep Pushing to know Christ and to be known by Him. And so this is a fitting conclusion to all that. Therefore, I care about you. Stand firm in the Lord. But on the other hand, this also goes with what we're looking at this morning. Standing firm in the Lord means, as I've said, adhering to the faith that has been delivered to us. We've been doing this the last few weeks in Sunday school. I think that's been a special time. But it also means together as believers seeking to be conformed to Christ like Paul has already talked about. It includes acting in the humility of christ like we saw in chapter two it includes christian unity like we saw in chapter two and that unity is around the gospel of jesus and it includes rejoicing in the lord as we've seen in chapters 1 2 3 and 4 of philippians because it's all over the book All of that's captured well in another verse in 2 Thessalonians. Let me show you that. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, that is the apostles, either by our spoken word or by our letter. See, the whole idea is maintain the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Here's the line. Stand on that line hold that line. Don't back off of that line. And we'll see this idea develop as we go through our passage. Next, what Paul's going to do is he's going to turn his attention to an inner personal conflict. Like, so two people in the church are having a conflict. And we know all about this. Again, we're humans. We're humans associated within an organization. It's bound to happen. Right? Scripture instructs us about this for good reason. And so we see this interpersonal conflict within the church in verses 2 and 3. Notice what he says. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. By the way, the fact that Brandon got up here and nailed those names was pretty impressive. Wouldn't you agree? I thought it was good. I, I just decided whatever he said is what I was going to say this morning. Uh, right, verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. So if you're wondering about those names, they are ladies. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who need to agree in the Lord. So presumably they're having some conflict and we know this isn't unusual because we've seen it throughout the book of Philippians. Remember in chapter 1 Paul talks about those who are seeking to cause him harm, who are disrupting the church. We see it in chapter 2 with the lack of unity there. We see it in chapter 3 with the warning, beware of the dogs, beware those who would impose all of these religious rules on you. Instead, focus on Christ. So we've seen it again and again and again, but here there's some conflict going on between these two ladies, and we could speculate, but just simply think about the types of conflicts you've experienced in the church, and then try to apply that to this situation. Has there ever been a time when there have been two parties who need to agree in the Lord? And that's the answer, yes, of course, that's what we need. And that's really the key phrase, to agree in the Lord. And I say it's a key phrase not just because of this verse, but because it's an idea highlighted throughout the whole letter to the Philippians. In fact, the language in translation is a little harder to see, but it's all over the place. For example, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Be of the same mind. It's a nearly identical language in the original. He's using the same terminology. Then just a few verses later, as he's explaining the need for that humility by being of the same mind, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, using that same language of having this mind or, or thinking this way. So what Paul is telling us, telling the Philippians, is to think like Christ. Not looking after our own interest only, but looking to the interest of others. Instead, we prioritize others in service and humility. Because that's exactly what Christ did. Christ, who is eternal God, became flesh and became a servant on our behalf. To serve us. To die for us. So we can summarize Paul's remedy for relational tension. I'll put it up here. The remedy for relational tension is this phrase agreeing in the Lord and pursuing the mind of Christ. We can see all of that in that chapter 2 passage. And we have to kind of go back there because Paul's already written about that. They've already read that when they get to chapter 4 here and they hear this language of agreeing in the Lord. They know it goes back to that section of chapter 2 of having the same mind, of sharing in the faith, and of thinking and acting like Christ. And what this does is it highlights the importance of trust in a congregation and shared values. And all of that is wrapped around the gospel. The only way we can have true Christian trust in a congregation, the only way we can actually have shared values that will bind us together are are when we recognize the gospel and when we recognize Christ as the priorities. See, love and unity may seem impossible in our world, but the key to this is focusing on Christ. We won't get much of anywhere if all we try to do is say, you know what, I'm going to be humble. I mean, have you, have you ever taken that tactic? I think so much preaching ends up being like, do this, or we, we assume that's what preaching is, and there's a problem with it. When it's a do this message, we forget the real thing, which is what God has done. And that's where we always have to start when we're talking about Christianity. We always have to start with, here is what God has done. And then only then can we ever begin to talk about what our life should look like in light of that. It always starts with God making the first movement. What God does before we ever are told to do anything. I've used this illustration before. But we see this best in the story of the Exodus. Israel is in captivity in Egypt. They do nothing but God delivers them from slavery. And he says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, here is how you will live in light of that. Because I have done this for you. This is how you will live to point to me in all of the world. So for us, we can't get caught up on a passage like this and say, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to agree with everybody and, and I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to think positive thoughts all the time. Because the reality is that doesn't always work for us, does it? So we need something more powerful that changes us from the inside it can't just be superficial changes so here's the answer if we are focused on the gospel if we are focused on pursuing christ if we are focused on conformity to christ if we are focused on making much of christ then christian love is entirely possible you know notice what i've said here i haven't said Here's the target, Christian love. Now aim at that. I've said here is the target, Christ. Now aim at that. And everything else will take care of itself. You see the difference. Look at what Christ, who he is. Look at what he has done. Aim at that. Okay, don't aim at the behavior right now. Focus on him. Some of the most helpful instruction on this point comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I talk about him all the time. So remember, murdered in a Nazi concentration camp, Lutheran pastor in Germany, really intelligent man, wrote several books. And one little book he wrote was called Life Together. And it's 120 pages or so. And it's all about how Christians live in community together. This was really his vision right uh, as Nazi Germany was... um, beginning to come to fruition. Uh, so I'll use him now for one point, point. I'll return to him for a second in a few minutes. But in Life Together, he writes about the difference between human love and what he calls spiritual love. We could call it Christian love, just to be clear. So human love and Christian love or spiritual love. So he says the following. He says, spiritual love proves itself in that everything it says and does commends Christ. Everything it says and does commends Christ. So what is the test or the gauge for Christian love? It commends Christ in everything. It makes much of Christ in everything. See, if the goal was Christ, if the goal was the gospel, then everything is about that. Everything is about that. When Paul asks Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, he's asking them, To make the main thing the main thing. Focus on Christ. Agree, not just agree, in the Lord. The Christian life is all about conforming to Christ. It's not about whose opinion is better. It's not about petty conflicts. In the Christian community, there must be a clear commitment to the gospel. That, that's priority number one. That's the foundation upon which everything is built. See, we can have a variety of different opinions, and Baptists are the best at this. Right? The old joke is something like this. You put two Baptists in a room and you get three opinions. Right? That, that's pretty much what we do. But if we are pursuing Christ... In spite of our variety of opinions on lots of different things, if we're pursuing Christ as we saw last week in chapter 3 and the week before, then we can still agree in the Lord. We can still press on to know Christ together. And yet we can have differences of opinion about minor things and yet agree in the Lord in such a way that those minor things don't create insurmountable conflict or destroy relationships or destroy the health of a congregation, or destroy the witness of a congregation. So back to Bonhoeffer, that line. The first question to ask in the church is not, does this meet my desires and opinions? All right, we, we live in a world that is all about consuming content, right? So the automobile changed this. All sorts of things have changed this. If you don't like the way I preach, for example, you can hop in a car and drive down to another church pretty easily, right? If you get offended by someone or or me, you can easily leave. And the problem with that is there's never any push for us to think about text like this. It's too easy, I'm not not bagging on anyone. I think all of us are prone to that. Before I was in ministry, it was the same way. Well, do I like this church? Do I want to go here? Right? And bouncing around. So the first question to ask is Does this exalt our Lord Jesus? That's the question. Does this exalt our Lord Jesus? Does this bear witness to the gospel? Does this exalt Jesus? Does it commend him? And does this bear witness to the gospel? Those are the questions. Not does it meet my preferences, not does it meet my opinions. Now, with conflict, as you might know, comes anxiety. And and what's really interesting is anxiety is both uh, one of the producing factors of conflict and it's also a product of conflict, right? So so it's there in the beginning, but, but it also keeps staying around in other ways. So it's always there. So Paul further explains the remedy for that, for all that anxiety, which is rejoicing in the Lord and prayer. That's the remedy. So look at verse 4 with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Again, this is the key. We fix our mind on what Christ has done. And how we how do we do that? What's a practice? Well, we do it through gratitude. Through Thanksgiving. And we have this beautiful cornucopia on our table this morning. And it's a reminder of our posture of thankfulness and gratitude. If what Christ has done doesn't produce joy in us, then it may mean that that's where we need to go back and start. If we're prone to conflicts or we're constantly bickering or we're constantly in the midst of a power grab or if we're constantly finding ourselves frustrated and, 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 and tense and anxious, then, then my advice to all of us would be this. We need to take a step back and we need to seek to be filled with gratitude for the gospel. Look at what Christ has done. Right? Notice everything is about rejoicing in the Lord. That is gratitude. So rejoicing is step one. Then there's this next idea in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. First we need to talk about this word translated reasonableness, which really isn't the best translation. And I think the English Standard Version, which I preach out of and teach out of, is maybe the only one that does this from what I recall. So you'll see it's not the best translation. If you're looking at your translation, you'll notice many of them use a word like gentleness, let your gentleness be known, or something related to that idea. And that's a step in the right direction. Because the word here, the underlying word, has this idea of yielding to, or being tolerant, or even being kind. So we can see how that fits the context. There's this conflict, Euodia and Syntyche are an illustration of that. It it involves these two individuals, And Paul instructs them to put their willingness to yield, their gentleness, their kindness on full display, right? Let your gentleness be known. Let your willingness to yield be known. Make that visible to everyone. And the whole grounds behind that is this idea at the end of the verse that the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. Now, unsurprisingly, there's debate about that phrase. What does it mean to say the Lord is near? And what's that got to do with letting our gentleness be known? Well, first off, note that it's a very similar phrase to what Jesus says when he says the kingdom of God is at hand or near. Some of the language is the same. It could mean, as it does with Jesus there, that the Lord is always present with his people. It could mean that the Lord is returning soon. And, And because of all of that, it's paramount that we let our reasonableness, our gentleness, our willingness to yield be displayed. John Calvin took this a step further and argued that the phrase refers to the providence of God. Put another way, he says it like this, the reason they can be yielding is because they can trust that the Lord is in control. The reason they can be gentle is because they can trust the Lord is in control. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord is near. Calvin summarizes this really well, so I'll share the whole paragraph with you. He writes in his commentary on this passage, We learn that this is the only remedy for tranquilizing our minds, for calming them down, when we repose unreservedly in God's providential care as knowing that we are not exposed either to the rashness of fortune, that is, it's not just a matter of chance because God's in control, or to the caprice of the wicked, that is, it doesn't matter what they decide to do, God's still in control, but are under the regulation of God's fatherly care. And then he summarizes by taking his position here. In fine, the man that is in possession of this truth, that God is present with him, has what he may rest upon with security." So the Lord is near, for Calvin at least, means God is with his people. And because of that, knowing that the Lord is in control and that he cares for his people and that he's present with his people at all times through his Holy Spirit allows us to have a gentle, yielding, tolerant attitude. You see that connection? We don't need to control the situation. And we can all just take a sigh of relief because we don't need to control things. Right, we can just let it go. Paul continues with verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, no that contrast, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So he said, Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Now he says, Let your request be made known to God. When he says, don't be anxious about anything, he's saying something, again, that sounds a lot like what Jesus teaches. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious, same verb here, about your life. And then Jesus, in closing that section, which is a really beautiful section of Scripture, gives the following instructions, just about eight or nine verses later. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus tells us the priority is to seek first the kingdom of God. Focus on the kingdom of God. Focus on what God is up to, what God has done. Paul was saying essentially the same thing. Stand firm in the Lord. Focus on what God has done in Christ. Focus on what Jesus has accomplished for our sake. Rejoice in the Lord. Do it with gratitude and thanksgiving. And here he says, if we can return back to the verse, verse 6, Let your request be made known. You can go forward one more. There you go. Let your requests be made known to the Lord. And again, notice that thanksgiving and gratitude are explicitly mentioned. So we have this connection to rejoicing. Now, what does this have to do with interpersonal conflict and reconciliation? Again, Bonhoeffer is helpful, so I'll share one more quote from Life Together. He says, thus this spiritual love, or remember Christian love, will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. Okay, Do you hear what he's saying? You would go to Christ and talk to that person before you would talk to the brother or sister. That's interesting. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through conversation? No, through prayer to Christ. And that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. So the way interactions in the church should happen differ from the way they happen in the world. Christian love, as Bonhoeffer says, is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. And what he means by that is who your brother and sister is in Christ. Who am I to come to you and attack you or say that you are unworthy when Christ has died on your behalf? I think that's paraphrasing Bonhoeffer elsewhere in the book. You you see the points, wholly dependent, you who are in Christ, right? Me who is in Christ, that's what it means to be part of the church. That's why a congregation functions differently. We're not just a bunch of people with a shared interest, though that is true about us, but it's so much more than that. It is who we are in Christ. And then he says this, that this most direct route to a brother or a sister is to go to Christ. In prayer, a sure path to reconciliation is bringing a brother or sister before the Lord in prayer. You know, I've suspected the reason I don't like the idea uh, of what Jesus teaches, uh, bless your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know why I don't like it? Because it works. (laughs) If, If you do it, it's hard to stay mad at them. If you actually pray for those people, it's really hard to go back and still be really tense and angry at them. It's like, you know when you really want to blow up on someone and you're waiting for it and you've prepared it and then something happens that doesn't allow you to do it and it's like a balloon that gets popped? This is all my sinful nature I'm sharing with you right now, just so you know. But, but that, that's exactly the idea, right? But Jesus knows exactly what will fix that. Bring it to prayer. Hold that person up before Christ. Bring them to Christ. Ask God to bless them and it will change how you think about them. And there's a promise to result in verse 7. So if it's not convincing at this point, hopefully verse 7 will be convincing. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, this this experience that many of us know that, that goes beyond anything you can put into words, will guard your hearts and your minds, again this phrase, in Christ Jesus. Nothing happens apart from the gospel. This isn't just do good, think differently. This is all about what Christ has done. You will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now remember, when Paul talks about peace, he's talking with all of the background of the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular, in mind. So it carries a much broader sense than simply feeling at ease. When we talk about peace, we just think about this tranquility, which is part of it. But there's a bigger aspect. It can also refer to bringing peace to a situation. So instead of of anxiety, instead of fear, instead of conflict, there's peace. There's interpersonal peace. But that's contingent on focusing on the faith, rejoicing in the Lord, and making our requests known to the Lord. Then Paul says there are certain things to think about. Each of these things is captured throughout the letter in the example of Christ And those who follow him. So, like Epaphroditus at the end of chapter two, or Timothy, we see that in them as well. So, if you just read chapter two, you'll see all of this there. Rather than focusing on our desires and our interests, we focus on the truths of our faith that have been given to us. Look at the last two verses, eight and nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, bring these things to your mind. Account for these things. Reckon with these things. Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, what's the result of practicing the faith, of focusing on what Christ has done, of living into conformity to Christ, of listening to Him, of praying to Him, of being grateful for what He's done? What is the end product? It is peace, again, according to verse 9. And more than that, actually, notice the words very carefully, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace, not just peace in an abstract sense, but the very God who produces peace, that peace which we can't really put into words, that surpasses understanding, will be with you. Remember what he said, how do you let your gentleness be made known? How can you do that? Well, because you know the God of peace is with you. The Lord is at hand. He's near and he's in control. So angling, mistrust, strategizing bad faith, leverage, gossip, accusations, depicting others in the worst possible light, which is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments, not bearing false witness, by the way. It's not just lying about people, it's depicting them poorly. That's actually a key to that. These, all of those, just fill in the blank, are not the characteristics of Christ followers. Here we have a passage of Scripture that tells us what healthy relationships look like. And how to remedy relationships that have been been harmed by conflict. We have a passage that tells us what the Christian community looks like. And we have a passage that gives us concrete steps that include gratitude and rejoicing. That include seeking to focus on the main things and then being conformed to Christ. We have concrete steps for seeing that community realized. I would ask you here, doesn't that sound more appealing than where we began? (laughs) I think it does. I think this is a compelling vision. I think every time we look at Scripture and we see this New Testament church depicted for us, at least for me, there's this longing to say, I want to be part of that. This actually holds out hope in the world. I I want my life to look like this. And it's not easy. It's not easy. We need each other for this, I think. I don't think you can actually do it on your own. I think we get too thrown off. But but if we follow these steps, if we come together around the main thing, which is the gospel of Christ, if our main aim and our main value as a congregation is to commend Christ, to make much of Christ, then that changes everything. It changes everything. Now, I know this isn't always the experience that we have. Often the experience is exactly the opposite of all that politicking in church. But we're called to press into the faith, to be conformed to Christ, to practice our faith. And when we do this, we have this promise that the God of peace will be among us, will be with us, will be sustaining us. And that's what we all need so desperately so everybody's really tense right now. I was thinking about this yesterday, having a conversation with someone. Everybody's really, really tense. Right? For the last 18 months, is it 18 or two years, whatever it is, we've all been really tense. Right? And it's such a strange time period we're in. Right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. We don't know what we can even do. I mean, it's talking about it before the service. It's been so weird trying to pastor, especially a new church for a year, in the middle of a pandemic. Like, One, you all have masks on, so I don't know who you are. No, not really. I know a lot of you. But it's so hard to keep track of. And then to to know where to go and how to handle all of these relationships with people and get to know people in the middle of a pandemic, it's crazy. On top of that, everybody's just very tense because the world seems chaotic right now. But here's a passage that tells us something about what we can do together as a congregation we can focus on Christ. We can focus on what God has done for us. This good news that we call the gospel that's unlike anything else in this world. You and I didn't work for anything. We're not pleasing God through our own righteousness. But Christ has died in our place. For us. No reason that we deserved it, but Christ has done it. And by simple faith, by trust in him, we are welcomed into the people of God. Once not a people, now a people. We, the church, can be that. And we can have this relationship with others on the basis of who we are in Christ that changes everything about how we relate to each other, how we function with one another, how we care about each other, even how we pray in the private moments in our home. All of that has changed because of what Christ has done. So I would submit to you that the remedy for a church, the remedy for our culture, is what Christ has done. And focusing with a singular devotion and rejoicing with great gratitude over what he has done for us. And as always, as we close here, I want to leave you with an invitation. If that's compelling to you and you don't know Christ or you wonder about your relationship with Christ, I would absolutely love to talk to you about that. Our other pastors, like Pastor Rupert, would love to talk to you about that. So please reach out to them, or Pastor Chris, who's in the sound booth, or any of our staff, or we have great lay leaders here too. There's so many people who would love to share that truth with you. If you have other needs, we're available for that as well. If you're interested in church membership, um, we can go through that conversation as well, what it might mean to partner with us as we seek to see this vision realized here at Monument Heights, because that's what we're aiming at. To see the gospel exalted and to have this new way of being in a community with others, so all of that 's available to you we 're going to do something a little different at the end of the service and i 'll tell you about that now because it 's so cold outside i 'm going to the library and Rupert 's going outside that 's not really why um, it 's actually warm I hope um, i 'm going to the library today i 'm going to hang out in there we 're going to try something different. Um, It's chaotic when people come outside, so I've talked with some some different leaders in our church, and, and, and I'm gonna hang out in there. There's coffee in there, a Keurig, you can have that. So if you wanna come in there, you wanna talk, you wanna ask me questions, I'm there for that. If you just wanna say, hey, I feel like I don't know you, I want to be there to get to know you too. So if you need me, I'll be there. Rupert will be there. Um, And Chris will be somewhere down toward the visitor center. You're not escaping us, all right? So we're everywhere. Uh, You can come talk to any of us. We'd love to talk to you. And and I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. So I'll be in there um, after the service. With that said, let me pray for us. And let me ask God to um, just do what we've been reading about, right? To do what we find in scripture. And that God would make that a reality here at Monument Heights. That would be amazing. Lord, we, we are so, we're so prone and drawn to this vision of the church. And we know it's hard. We know that conflict with each other is hard, and the tension that arises, and the anxiety, and some of us deal with it better than others, and, and, and some of us just really struggle with it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be present among us, as you've promised And even more than that, that we would recognize your presence among us. Like we wouldn't just you know talk about it, but we would experience it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on the main thing here. We would focus on the gospel of Christ. There's a whole lot of things we can talk about, a whole lot of organizational things and, 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 and relationship dynamics and all sorts of variables in our world and in the life of our congregation. But, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to cut back all of the, the, the strappings and all of the fog and we would see what really matters, and that we would rejoice in the Lord together, that we would agree in the Lord together. And that we would experience the peace of God together as we focus on what is truly important, what is truly beautiful, what is truly praiseworthy. I pray that you would set those things before us, that our attention would be singular. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts, that you would help us who are already in Christ to go deeper, to press on. And those who may not know Christ, that their eyes would be open and their hearts would be receptive this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who's done what we could never do for ourselves. Amen.